Welcome to the Environmental Extremes Global Engagement Journal Club, brought to you in collaboration by the Thermal Ergonomics Laboratory at the University of Sydney and the Research Connection Innovation Fund at the University of South Australia. The show is hosted by Associate Professor Ollie Jay and Dr. Samuel Chalmers. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Environmental Extremes Global Engagement Series. This is an episode that focuses on heat stroke. It's my real pleasure to introduce two leading researchers in this particular field. First of all, we have Dr. Lisa Leon, who's Chief of the Thermal and Mountain Medicine Division at the U.S. Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine. Uh, Lisa, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Likewise, likewise. And uh, we also have Dr. Orlando Laitano, who's an assistant professor in the College of Human Sciences at Florida State University. Orlando, thanks to you for joining us as well. Thank you. It's an honor to be here with you all. And thanks to you both for putting together two wonderful videos that I think um, made um, understanding the papers, particularly for people who may be not familiar with mice-related work, to really better understand it in a very succinct and interesting way. So we've had a bunch of questions that have been submitted for both these papers. I'll just quickly just remind everybody which papers that we covered. Uh, First of all, there was the paper that Lisa talked about, and the first author was Shauna Dineen, and it was published in Experimental Physiology, and the title was Prior Viral Illness Increases Heat Stroke Severity in Mice. And then the second paper was uh, the lead author was Orlando Laitano. Um, it was published in Journal of Physiology, London in 2020, I believe. And the title was Delayed Metabolic Dysfunction in Myocardium Following Exertional Heat Stroke in Mice. So clearly the common theme between the two studies uh, are heat stroke. The studies were done in, in a mouse model. And some of the questions we have around better understanding that model and understanding how mouse data can then be translated into a human model, or maybe there are limitations. Um, and maybe we'll also uh, go off piece a little bit and just just pick your brains a little bit more about the underlying mechanisms, how we understand them in terms of heat stroke. Because I know a lot of the, the people that listen to this podcast, um, a, a lot of a lot of people teach. And uh, one of the, the things that we often are confronted with when we're trying to teach them a regulatory physiology, particularly when we're looking at heat stress and heat stroke, is trying to really better understand or better describe um, the underlying mechanisms of catastrophic heat stroke. And I know that, uh, Lisa, in particular, you've done some really nice review papers in that area. So if we have a spare five minutes, I might ask you to um, go a little deeper into that, if that's okay. So we'll start off with uh, Shauna Deneen's paper, and we'll go to the the first question that uh, we had submitted. And that was, are the blood results with the administration of the poly-IC in this study similar to what might be seen in human blood after an upper respiratory ill infection? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. So just to be honest up front, I haven't really looked into human upper respiratory infection medical conditions and, and sort of what they experienced. But the reason we used poly-IC was because it is a flu-like mimic. So it is a, a model that we use to, to mimic flu. Uh, And if you think of, for example, COVID, which is a flu-like illness, if you cut to the chase that one of the main findings that we found in our paper was that coagulation had gone askew, and that seems to be probably one of the primary mechanisms that was causing an issue, we know that that's also the case with COVID. So I I suspect that there are, I mean, one of the reasons we use that is because it it does mimic a lot of those human uh, responses. I suspect the time course is different. The important thing to understand with our model, and you might consider the limitation, is it was not a proliferating viral infection. And that was just because it was easier for us to implement that, you know, to get a real flu virus. Are there any data available at this moment showing any kind of exacerbation of any heat-related problems with people who might be infected with, with COVID, let's say? particularly in areas where there's high levels of infection? Yeah, we haven't seen that on the military side. So that might just be because our education has been particularly uh, better in the last couple of years for a number of reasons. Uh, but we we are actually getting ready to do a study where we're going to do any military patients who actually collapse and go to the hospital, look back and see if they had a positive COVID diagnosis in the previous months or so forth. We haven't done that yet, but I don't know of any evidence of that. The one thing I think uh, is particularly potentially quote unquote dangerous is that people are spending a lot of time indoors. So that that heat acclimation is going away. And we are seeing that uh, in the military population. So instead of being outside and, and exercising all the time, they're spending a lot more time indoors and then they're just getting a decay of that acclimation that they might have. 
which are potentially dangerous, but I don't think the data are there. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's funny that you mentioned about um, the amount of time that people are spending indoors. Um, we, we had a, a similar challenge here um, at the start of this year with uh, the Australian Open Grand Slam tennis tournament. And one of the main concerns for the athletes coming over is that everybody has to enter a 14-day quarantine before they then are released in, into the country. Um, so we know for sure that no one's not letting people in that are infected. But one of the main concerns for the athletes was that they were spending 14 days, some of them in hard lockdown in a hotel room, and um, trying to provide them with advice whereby they could acquire some level of heat acclimation without leaving their rooms was, was quite challenging. Yeah, it's the not leaving the rooms part, right? Because there is a way to get around that. You could go, you could have a gym that has an elevated temperature and you could still get heat acclimation if you were forced to be indoors. But in this climate, it's, it's almost impossible. Yeah, we, we were recommending um, overdressing with exercise and topped up with some uh, hot water immersion as well, whether for some day to support that, but uh, not, not a great deal. I was just going to say, you know, one of the other interesting things that somebody asked me is whether or not the COVID vaccine is going to be a pre-existing factor for some folks uh, being more susceptible to heat stroke, which is an interesting idea, right? So um, I don't know the answer to that. I can say that other immunizations have been shown to increase uh, potentially the susceptibility of heat stroke, but whether that holds true for the COVID vaccine or not, I don't know. Yeah. So uh, in terms of those data from other vaccines or immunizations, is the effect size substantial or is it, is it something that's quite marginal and therefore the very small increase in risk relative to the risk that the virus itself presents is balanced out? Yeah, it wasn't so much a power issue. It was because military populations are exposed to so many different vaccines that you can't parse apart which ones are actually might be implicated. And the other problem is, if, for example, if you come into the military and you still have, if you've already been vaccinated for certain things, you will only get a subset of immunizations that are required. So let's say if you had 10, you had to get, if you'd already had five, you'd only get five. And then somebody else would get six and somebody would get 10, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it becomes very difficult you know, in that sense. And I suppose you really have a lack of controls as well, because uh, everybody's going to be vaccinated. So. Yeah, that's another issue. <laughs> um, so on to the second question, Lisa. Uh, this was one around passive heat stress versus active heat stress. And um, so you used a, a passive heat stress model? Yeah, we did use passive heat stress. Um, the reason for that is because this study was actually done several years ago before we had an exertional heat stroke model. And so we worked with the University of Florida with uh, Orlando's group and Tom Clanton uh, to develop an exertional heat stroke model in their lab, but that was not available when we conducted this study. So we did it in passive. And so one of the limitations that we put in the study is that we don't really know what the effect would be with uh, an exertional heat stroke model, but I suspect it, it could potentially be worse. If you think of it on the human side, one of the issues with heat stroke many times is rhabdomyolysis. Uh, and so that could be a compounding factor. So unfortunately, we, we weren't able to do that. Um, but I can say that this model, this passive heat stroke model is much more severe than the exertional heat stroke that we have. So it's one of those things where we'd have to titrate it to make sure you had a similar thermal load between the two models to really do that comparison. So it's not necessarily a trivial issue either. Because this idea of, uh, of the thermal load is, in a sense, uh, something that came up in Orlando's paper as well, I think, wasn't it, in terms of duration of exposure. So, so you said that the, the passive heat stress model is more severe. So that's just in terms of duration in du duration of exposure to a given environmental set of environmental conditions. Is that, is that what, you, what you mean by that? Yeah, so the exertional heat stroke model, the animals actually go unconscious. And it's, um, it's, it's, again, titrating that ambient temperature and the running speed and all those sort of variables. And with the passive model, we had developed it to specifically have about three to five hours of heat exposure. Um, so that was done a long time ago. And then when we moved to the exertional heat stroke model, it's just, like I said, time to, time, trying to titrate those two and make them very similar is, is not a trivial issue. And so uh, it's a great model. Uh, it's just that I don't know if you could, you might be comparing a little bit of apples and oranges. I see. Yeah. Yeah. There is a, can I add something? Uh, sorry to, to oh, jump no, into a question. Of course. Yeah, 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 please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there, there is a two degree difference in the temperature in the exertional heat stroke. We set the chamber at 37.5 degrees Celsius. Hmm. And I think in Lisa's classic model, she sets the chamber up to 39.5, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, that's correct. And, and that's, that's tr to try to then account for the, the exercise bit in the passive. So time-wise, I think they are about the same uh, duration. It's only that it's hotter in the classic model. 
See, now this is why I like working with Orlando because he'll remember all those little details that I always forget. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's good to have. Good to have in your locker there, Orlando. So um, maybe this would be a good opportunity to uh, just take a quick segue, if you don't mind, into the, the underlying mechanisms of heat stroke as we best understand them right now. And also maybe briefly talk about how that's different to other types of heat-related illnesses that we see in, let's say, vulnerable people in, in heat waves. Um, maybe if we just, just start off with, as we best understand it now, the underlying mechanism responsible for heat stroke. Lisa, could you maybe kind of walk us through that in a, in a basic sense or in a, in, a, in a way in which maybe some of our listeners might be able to use for um, integrating into the teaching, for example? Yeah, sure. So there's a lot of different ways to think about this. So we typically do this with these kind of flow charts, right, of, of all the events that are happening in succession. The problem is that it's a very complicated syndrome. I think the first thing for people to understand is everything that goes wrong after you collapse from heat stroke is no longer a heat event. So you have the heat. It does cause some, it can cause thermal injury to the, to the um, vasculature, can cause thermal injury to the organs, but then it's this whole systemic inflammatory response that takes place. And that in, in conjunction with coagulation and coagulation, it could, it could go awry in different ways. It could be that you're not coagulating. It could be that you're, I mean, some heat stroke patients that's been described, they're bleeding from the gums and different orifices. Other ones, it's, it's a over coagulation, uh, which causes a problem. Right. But it's really these, these mechanisms that kind of, they, they interact in either an, uh, an additive or synergistic way, we don't really know, and it just becomes a full-blown, we think it's a full-blown infection or a full-blown full inflammation that the, the body just can't get in check, and eventually the organs just, just start to shut down. And then that's an interesting thing. So what, what goes first, right? Is it the heart that goes first, and or is it happening concurrently? And that's even more complicated because it depends what other risk factors you have on board. So if you have a pre-existing condition, what goes wrong and how it goes wrong is going to be different than if you just had a naive animal, for example. So I don't know if that's going to help anybody to teach that. <laughs> so really, really, it's a cascade of catastrophic events that are triggered by the initial event, which is high tissue temperatures of particular organs. Is that right? Yeah. So let me sort of walk through the flow chairs. I kind of have the, the picture in my head because I've made enough slides of these, right? So first of all, when you, when you start getting heated up, you're going to, you need to get your blood out to the skin to help to dissipate that heat. But to facilitate that redistribution of blood out to the skin, you've got to decrease the, the blood that's going to the organs. You can't be sending blood everywhere, right? Because you have certain demands. And if you're exercising, if you go to exertional heat stroke, now you have to make sure blood's going to the skeletal muscles. So the, the organs that typically are thought to experience the greatest reduction in blood flow is the gut. Um, but it could be multiple organs. Um, it just depends on sort of what functions are ongoing. And what happens with that decrease in that blood flow is that the organ becomes ischemic, yep. if it's especially prolonged, right? So and you get some nitrosative stresses and oxidative stressors happening, and it starts to break down the membrane of the gut. Um, and so as that starts to happen, it's thought that the bacteria that normally exists in your gut can then leak across those membranes. Now, I think typically we're having some bacteria leaking across our membranes at all time, but the liver is a very important organ. It'll go into the portal circulation and the liver can normally clear that because it's just a very small amount. But if you have this overblown leakage of bacteria, it can no longer be cleared. The thought is that it occurs in the systemic circulation. So that's one mechanism that's going to sort of stimulate the systemic inflammatory response because now it's a bacterial infection. So Lisa, can I, can I just quickly ask it? So um, have there been any studies to date that have tried to um, portion out the role of that local ischemia and then how that is consequently, if at all, aggravated by different levels of local tissue temperature or does local tissue temperature come into it at all? I guess the reason is, is that if we're thinking about all the studies that we do where we're looking at um, how hot people get and we're also always looking at their core temperature, their deep, let's say rectal temperature, and then we're interpreting that as some kind of indication of risk of of exertional heat illness or, or maybe heat stroke ultimately. But if the lead mechanism is really this redirection of blood, then does it matter exactly how hot the tissue temperatures of these vulnerable organs get? 
Yeah, I mean, tissue temperature is thought to be another one of the stimuli that's sort of interacting with this ischemia, right? So it's probably multiple events. And if you think about the livers, the liver is known to get the hottest, but the liver is very resilient to that, but other tissues aren't. So that'd be very difficult to do in an animal setting, measuring local tissue temperatures. But sure, there's distribution of temperatures all over the body. I mean, that's what your body's trying to do, right? Dissipate that, and and, and that's going to change how that blood is being uh, redistributed. But just to, to finish on this sort of flowchart thing, so when you have that bacteria leaking, now you've stimulated inflammatory response, where you also have the thermal injury to the vasculature, you get coagulation, and then you start to think if you got cytokines being released and all these other inflammatory mediators, you've got coagulation going on and all these events, and it just kind of culminates and just, it just, it's like a, the perfect storm, and yeah. then if your body can't resolve it, it's just your organs fail, and that, that's kind of the end of it. Orlando, do you have anything to uh, add to this grim, grim scenario? No, that's that's great. Uh, I, I'm learning a lot every time that I, I have the opportunity to interact with Lisa. It's always learning, uh, and 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 when you bring up these practical issues with humans, also it's very like uh, we, we start thinking about physiology beyond the, the model in itself. You know, yeah, yeah. so it's it's uh, it's really interesting. And um, one thing I was gonna I was gonna say about this is that we've been uh, having, by writing reviews and trying to, to reassess the definition of exertional heat stroke, we bump into a lot of misconceptions, I would say. I, we actually wrote, I think, a chapter or a review article um, maybe last year about these mis- misconceptions about what heat stroke is. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of uh, issues with defining heat stroke, and especially in the, in, in the, at the clinical level, when someone shows up at the ER, mm-hmm. and then you are going to define whether this, this is an EHS victim, an exertional heat stroke victim, or it's just like a, a severe heat stress, or it's just a, a collapse due to other reasons. So this is this is very difficult, and it, and it affects the epidemiology of it, you know. So I've, I've I've noticed that some questions that are, are coming up, they have this epidemiological thing, whether the model is representative of what happens at the human level, mm-hmm. and then it is this difficulty of characterizing and, and how similar the pathophysiology is to other yeah. heat-related issues, you know, yeah. that makes it very hard to study and to frame in a very simple and, and practical way for those who teach, for instance, I think. Yeah. Well, the one thing I, that I try to think of it is the body is not going to come up with new ways to resolve all these different types of infections or inflammations that you undergo. We have so many mechanisms available and it's going to use the same mechanisms probably to resolve the inflammation that's occurring to different stimuli. Just because it's a different stimulus doesn't mean it's not causing the same responses that can be resolved in the same way, right? The collection of responses may be different. But in, in any particular infection, your body is probably seen or has a mechanism to resolve that in response to other stimuli just as well. So it's not going to invent something new. Uh, it's, I think where the, where the gap is, is we just don't understand it, right? We don't really know what's going on. And when I first started studying heat stroke, which was like in 2001, it was really interesting in that nobody, I won't say nobody, but the majority of studies weren't even looking at the recovery responses. They were all looking at, you know, if you heat an animal up, how long does it take them until they can't survive any longer? It's all these survival studies. And I thought, wow, this is a whole, you can just, it's a whole field. I mean, it's just, it's, there's so many questions that, that I'll be retiring me soon. And Orlando is going to, never going to come to an end of questions that he can answer as he moves this forward. <laughs> Lisa uh, and Ollie, uh, another thing, I actually going to, I was going to mention this before, but I, I actually, it escaped me while I was organizing my thoughts here. But, uh, when I applied for jobs in academia and I, I had to give a, a job talk about my, my career and, and uh, most importantly about my research plans for the future. And I have two very, what initially would be seen as a very different, two different research paths that I'm actually working in my lab right now. One is the exertional heat stroke and the other one is sepsis. Uh, and actually it's a sepsis induced myopathy. And the origin of this idea to, to branch the, the research path towards sepsis is because just what because what Lisa just said about the pathophysiology of, of heat stroke has an overlapping uh, characteristic with sepsis, right, Lisa? Because once you have this major inflammatory response and then you have this, you know, this, this um, 
kind of hyper-responsiveness of the immune system, this is exactly what sepsis is. And so I just branched the, the, the two uh, research lines to, to make the lab more um, effective in terms of, you know, grant and funding attraction by studying both exertional heat stroke. And then we also have this, this um, line with sepsis-induced myopathy. But this idea was born in, from the exertional heat stroke observations, if you will. So... Very nice. Can, can I just ask you both, when we look at the, the public health literature, and I know this is kind of innocent, this relates to, to Orlando's paper that we're going to discuss in a little bit here. You see a lot of the mortality data being stacked up in the columns associated with cardiovascular disease, renal disease, things like this. And often these people are also quite old and frail and probably passive heat stress as opposed to or predominantly passive heat stress, maybe with a little bit of exertional, but probably not much at all. Do you think that we're looking at entirely different mechanisms? So, for example, if somebody with underlying coronary artery disease dies in a heat wave, often I think it's fair to say that they, the way in which it's registered is that they've had a, a catastrophic cardiovascular event. Um, so they're not actually dying of heat stroke per se, but they're dying of of a cardiovascular event that's clearly been aggravated by the heat. Do either of you or both of you have any thoughts about the underlying mechanisms in, in those types of scenarios, which may be different to, to heat stroke? I don't know, Orlando, you have any ideas on that? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. And this is the difficulty of retrospective studies, I think, is, is to to tease out what the reason is. We, we had, we, I, I think during my presentation for this podcast, I tried to, to frame in a way that our model came in handy to, to try to address these questions from a hypothesis-driven perspective where we can then test whether this is a cause or, or effect, right? And at least our data fits in some, uh, at least in the instance of cardiovascular events that, if you've had a heat stroke in the past, maybe you are more susceptible to have cardiovascular issues in the future. But then you have all this, this comorbidities or cofactors that come with like aging process. And then you have other behavioral issues like smoking that usually the retrospective studies, they use the statistical uh, model to try to, to account for these factors. But even so, it's really hard I would say to pinpoint the, the exact mechanisms by which yesterday we had a meeting discussing the likelihood of kidney disease and whether this could be something that, because this is what we have been observing with our models recently is that you have the episode and then a long time later, you start seeing issues that you don't see soon after the episode, right? Which, which questions all the biomarkers story where it's like, okay, you see a biomarker, at 30 minutes, one hour after the episode, then we, we try to predict whether someone will have, how, how soon can, can this person return to physical activity based on that biomarker. But then we don't have the information moving forward in terms of like 15 days, a month later, years later, we have the epigenetic data suggesting that this might even carry over to offsprings, you know, which is kind of scary somehow. But so I wouldn't know how to answer objectively the the mechanism and i think that's the quest we are all trying to to define it but i definitely think that heat stress severe heat stress can set you up for organ failure in the future but then whether this depends on the load on the intensity this is harder for me to have a definitive answer right now so just thinking out loud just listening to Orlando speaking about that, it's interesting that with the classic heat stroke, which is the older individuals who die during annual heat waves, they usually don't die till day two or three. But with exertional heat stroke, first of all, you don't get many deaths with exertional heat stroke, but they usually collapse early. Usually it's early in an event. And so it's suggesting that maybe they have something that's pre-existing, right? So, so there probably are different mechanisms there. Uh, I think the one thing to consider is if you think about someone who's had a heat stroke and then they try to go back to activity or back to military duty or whatever it might be, a lot of times what happens is they're sitting in the hospital and their biomarkers go back to normal and they're like, okay, you're ready, you can go back, and then they go back and they collapse again. Well, when you're sitting in the hospital and you're not doing anything and your biomarkers go back to normal, it doesn't mean that your organs are necessarily 
resolved the potential injury or whatever's going on, right? It still might be compromised and the biomarkers just aren't reflecting that, which I think is, is fairly common. But then all of a sudden they go back in the heat, they get that ischemia again, and it puts that organ over the edge. So I would imagine if you have an older individual and they have a pre-existing condition like cardiovascular insufficiency, they just can't tolerate that ischemia. It's just, it just it pushes that organ over the limit. I think there's also probably uh, some room for interpretation of the fact that a lot of people that are hospitalized or die in heat waves, often it's, you know, there, there are classic heat stroke cases, but often they say it's cardiovascular disease that's being worsened by the heat or something like that. That's normally the way that's chalked up in the in the hospitalization data or the or the epi data. But I, I often think about the way in which the body defends internal temperature, particularly from a passive heat stress insult is that you know, we have one of the first responses of cutaneous vasodilation, redirecting this blood out towards the skin. And in order to maintain blood pressure, our cardiac output has to go up, our venous return goes down, and therefore all of a sudden we're asking the heart to do a lot more work than it normally is asked to do. And if you have this cardiac insufficiency, like you described, Lisa, then your capacity to tolerate that extra workload from a heart perspective is probably really quite limited. And then perhaps then if you have an underlying insufficiency or underlying infirmity, then that really kind of reveals it. And that's potentially why we might end up seeing um, a lot of cardiovascular events in, in heat waves in people with these pre-existing conditions. But that's just a that's kind of a thought that we're working on here in Sydney. And um but that you know there is definitely some some dovetailing with the heat stroke mechanisms that we're seeing as well. I mean, that's um just wanted to get your thoughts on that um maybe we'll just go into w- one more question of 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 lisa's paper then we'll we'll, we'll focus on o- orlando's um so lisa in your model you use two types of infections or two types of injections to, to induce these types of infections a bacterial one and a viral one and one thing we haven't covered as well is that so one of the hypotheses of the papers was that is whether thermoregulation was was going to be compromised by these prior infections. And you found that irrespective of the infection or whether you had an infection at all, thermoregulatory responses or capacity, I guess you would say, seemed to be unaltered. And it was just the sensitivity to that thermal insult that was different. Um, in terms of just the conversation that we had in my lab, my trainees, we were trying to understand just the background behind the different types of infections that you use. So what a bacterial infection um, is representative of in the viral one. So could you maybe just um, talk us through that a little bit in a basic sense? Yeah, so lipopiosaccharide or LPS, that's your bacterial mimic. Um, we use that, uh, it's very commonly used in, uh, so my background is in fever. So I used to use uh, LPS a lot with a lot of fever studies. It's just, it's just, you know, a very generic bacterial infection. And the other one was the poly-IC, which is the, um, supposed to be like the flu-like. So originally, we actually, originally were interested in viral illness because we had, uh, as I mentioned in the, in the video, that we had a number of anecdotal evidence that viral illness was the culprit. But we thought, well, if we're going to do viral, we should look at bacterial because not everybody just gets a viral illness. And if it is leakage from the gut, maybe that would exacerbate it. There was also a study that was done um, by Lynn, who's done a lot of work on heat stroke, and they had actually injected LPS right before they put them in the heat. And so we thought, well, let's remove that, you know, put that time frame in between so that you don't have those clinical symptoms. So that's one of the reasons that we went and, and compared the two. Unfortunately, as I mentioned also uh, in the video, we, we didn't titrate it quite right. So unfortunately, that, that question is still out there. But I'm not, does that answer your question? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Just down to that titration question. So that was interpreted by the fact that the, the basically the fever that was induced was of a different magnitude. Is that right? Yeah. If you look at all their sickness symptoms, the fever was less. They recovered their body weight, food intake and water intake quicker. Uh, and so what we had done, which we didn't publish, but we had actually done a dose response <laughs> prior to that, right? And we had looked at, because LPS is tricky because typically people use like 2.5 milligrams per kilogram to get a full-blown sepsis. And we were going down to 50 micrograms per kilogram, which goes back to my graduate school days. And so we had tested a couple of different doses and between 50 and 100, we didn't say see a difference. So we said, well, let's go with 50. <laughs> I don't know why, but I don't think it would have made a bit, made a bit of difference. So that's okay. <laughs> it happens. That's great. Okay, so oh, actually, one thing just to pick up on, on a couple of uh, things that you were referring to there, Lisa, is that what I think thing is quite striking. And so, uh, in the introduction to your talk, you mentioned that there are two thousand heat-related hospitalizations a year in the military. Is that right? Yeah, at least that. 
there's probably more heat strokes than that because if they're treated out in the field and, and they don't go to a, a medical facility, medical treatment facility, it won't be recorded. So yeah, there's, there's quite a few. Some of those are probably heat exhaustion, um, but that's the number of hospitalizations. And then, and then in, in the introduction to Orlando's paper, he mentioned another statistic that really struck me. So if you've had heat stroke, you're 2.2 times more likely to to have to die of cardiovascular disease is that right Orlando? yeah this is based on actually two retrospective studies that were published these are those were 14 year uh, follow up studies of people who had heat stroke i i must say that uh the way i framed my presentation it may sound like those were exertional but they were not only exertional you have uh, i think the majority of the cases were classic heat stroke actually and and of course our model the model we used to test the, the hypothesis was an exertional model, so yes that's what the literature suggests that uh, but th- those were again uh, I I know that there is a big deal of, of sex difference uh, questions related to to that paper in particular, and uh, again when we go and look to those to those studies they they were not they did not separate men from women, <laughs> I think probably because of the number of cases that they were able to follow for that duration. So they combine these numbers, This uh, how much more likely you are to have a cardiovascular event when you are 14 years after you've had an EHS or a classic heat stroke episode is based on, it's a mixed population, if you will. And so, but that was the, the trigger for our question was that like, can this be due to the previous episode or or this was because what you just mentioned before when you were discussing about the predisposition of having cardiovascular issues, then you are not as effective to thermoregulate and therefore you are more susceptible to have a heat stroke episode. So, You know, it is interesting just to interject really quickly. I haven't seen any studies that really are showing that thermoregulation is askew. I mean, there was, a, I mentioned a couple of anecdotal ones, right? Guy shows up with a blister and he seems to have a different thermoregulatory response. But if you look at a heat stroke, it's not a thermoregulatory event. And I hate to say that because I'm a thermoregulatory physiologist and I clung to that idea for so long, but it's really a cardiovascular event. And it really, what goes askew, it's everything after that collapse. It's just, it's almost like you've, you've hit a switch. So we had this heat event and now we've got a systemic inflammatory response. And, and you know, we, we there's a connection there, but the heat is now removed and you have to sort of shift that thinking a little bit. Yeah. This is why it's misleading probably to define heat stroke as temperature threshold, you know, to say, oh, heat stroke is only when core temperature is, is above and beyond a given threshold, you know, because that is a, a problem based on what Lisa just said. Yeah. Oh, and I think that's that's why I was my line of questioning when um, I was asking Lisa to describe the the underlying mechanism is that you know often a lot of the work that we do as an area of research is often looking at the core temperature response and then being concerned about reaching particular thresholds. So I guess maybe we've got, again we're kind of going off piece here a little bit, but it's, it's an interesting conversation. Maybe we will carry on with it for a couple more minutes. Is uh, so in terms of. The type of the data that we do have for people that we have a, a core temperature measurement on them and the type of levels of heat strain that we see when they experience heat stroke, either exertional or classical. Often those measurements probably be when they're hospitalized, I suppose, afterwards. But h- how reliable is that temperature measurement in terms of severity, outcome, or is it just there's no correlation at all? Yeah, so, the, the, you know, we've done it. So we have guidance that we put out for the Army. It's heat stress guidance. It's a very comprehensive document that basically just takes all of the information out in the literature and tries to give that to our leaders to educate them and just to say, look, at when you have somebody who has this, here's how to prevent it, here's how to treat it. And we've gone away and completely shifted our definition of heat stroke from saying it's severe hyperthermia with central nervous dysfunction to saying it's central nervous dysfunction with severe hyperthermia. Quit focusing on the, on the thermoregulation because what we've been told was happening is that they were so busy trying to get a temperature when they collapsed in the field that they weren't cooling them. Said, who cares what the temperature is? It doesn't matter what the temperature is. Just cool them as fast as you possibly can. So, and you know, if you look at some of those review articles, runners that can get up to 42 or whatever the temperature is, very high temperatures, and they're they're perfectly fine. So we've been pushing in Orlando and our review article as well, really trying to push people away from focusing on a number. We like numbers, right? Because it's like this tangible thing, but I don't think it's a wise way to go. Just the same with who cares if they go hypothermic when you're cooling them? It's not gonna it's not gonna harm them, and it might actually be better. Yeah, 
Yeah. And I, I suppose that um, from a risk management perspective, understanding the chances of reaching a given threshold is probably quite useful. Um, but in terms of the from the diagnosis perspective, if, is, if, is it fair to say that if you come across a, a potential heat stroke victim and it's in an environment where it's clear that that's a likely scenario, then rapidly cooling them is probably the best course of action? in terms of the best clinical outcomes? Is that what you're suggesting, Lisa? Yeah, that's what I'm suggesting. Cool first and take the temperature later. And then the problem you get with that, though, and I understand this, is that when they get to the hospital, if if the temperature out in the field happens to be below 40, because that's the the number, or 41, whatever the number people want to use, then they don't classify it as a heat stroke. Because they're like, oh, it doesn't meet the temperature criteria. So it's like this, this, you know, yin and this yang. You're constantly going, is could the coders want to be able to code it correctly? So then when you do those epidemiology studies, sometimes it's not accurate or your numbers aren't accurate. But who cares? You have somebody who just fell in front of you who could potentially die. So just cool them and say, worry about that other stuff later. It's not really that important. I suppose then the only risk is then if, if you're treating some or you're incorrectly diagnosing somebody and then therefore providing the incorrect treatment. But I guess it's all contextual, isn't it? If people are highly exertional, they're carrying a high load, they're wearing lots of protective equipment, it's in a hot and humid environment potentially, then the chances that it is a heat-related incident is, is presumably very high. Yeah, but, you know, it, it's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because hyponatremia, when, when folks overdrink uh, and they, they basically drown themselves, that has the same symptoms as heat stroke. And if you were treating those in that could result in people dying. So that is important. But typically, it's in context. You, you sort of understand. Sure, sure. Another quick one on this discussion is about the people like also to define uh, uh, an ideal threshold to until when you should cool someone. You know, that say a victim collapsed and then you are cooling. Now, okay, what's the temperature that we should stop? And I, I think we organized a round table, I think, at one experimental biology a few years ago where we we were debating this, and I think that the conclusion was that the neurological s- symptoms should be taken into consideration together with the temperature. So it shouldn't be a decision made on on, on temperature per se, because the, as Lisa said, the first sign of stroke is the, the loss of consciousness and, and the confusion and, and the signs of central nervous system dysfunction that usually we... We flip the discussion entirely to a, to a temperature threshold, a magic threshold that will be, okay, if this temperature is achieved, now we are we ha- have heat stroke. And if cooling has been achieved up until here, the victim is now safe. And, and it's not that easy, I think, uh, based on the, the physiology of, of the process. So, And there's a rationale for that, right? There's a rationale for them choosing that temperature threshold, which is if you compare it to fever, when does fever get dangerous? And at what temperature do you start to see tissue destruction, which is a study done a long time ago, and 40, 41 tends to be those values. So it is rooted in science, but in practicality, I think it's kind of um, potentially dangerous. Great. Um, so um, we should move on to Orlando's paper and uh, just uh, field a couple of questions around that as well, if you don't mind, Orlando. So just to summarize the study that you presented, so you found a sex difference basically in the outcomes. So basically, you were looking at your exertional heat stroke, and I think the threshold temperature used was 42.5 degrees Celsius. That's right. Yeah, either that or when the animals collapsed. But very rarely, they collapse before that. Usually, the range is 42.2 to 42.5. I think Lisa might see the same in in her model, sometimes 42.7 for some warriors, you know. (laughs) Warrior mice. Yeah. (laughs) So when that was completed, then you sacrificed different animals at different time uh, points. And then you did this, I can't even say it, metabolomics? Metabolomics. Metabolomics. Analysis, which is is very Mm -hmm. interesting. So this is one of the first times I've kind of exposed to this. And then you were looking at the glycolysis processes and you found that there was a suppression at one step. And then you kind of then follow it back up the chain of reactions and then found that then because it was deficient at a certain part of these chain of events, then it would take a di- this, a, this different pathway. So just with respect to, to that type of analysis. So um, uh, when you get the, the results from, from this analysis, did you first start looking at a particular point in the chain of the glycolytic processes? 
and then decide to follow it back up? And is there a reason that you started there, if you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With the type of um, mechanisms that you suspect might be at play. Right. This was actually, uh, the whole process was fascinating to me. It was, <laughs> it was the first time that I could associate the research with a detective's work, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's almost like <laughs> type of, and I was, uh, I must say I was a postdoc in Dr. Tom Clanton's lab at University of Florida. And we did this study that was really like time consuming because as you just mentioned, we had several, I think five or, or six time points uh, ranging from 30 minutes uh, post collapse uh, up to 14 days, right? So we send the, the tissue to, to this metabolomics analysis that is this omics that is kind of all the omics now are, are hot, you know, the proteomics, metabolomics, genomics, and epigenomics now you have as well. Yeah. And, and, and these are very good to, to use a scientific um, terminology here. These are very good hypothesis generating tools. And when you when you are in the more informal uh, discussion, people say that these are fishing expeditions, <laughs> where you throw a net and, and you see, let's see what's what's happening here, you know. Which is, I mean, philosophically, you can debate whether this is the best approach to, to do science, but it is a good way to generate hypotheses. So we got this gigantic data set back from from Metabolone, which is the company uh, that did this analysis for us. And then it was really, I still have, of course, all the spreadsheets here and I can show you one day. It's a really intimidating set of data. It's just like numbers and gigantic, gigantic. Lisa saw it. Uh, I, you, you are a co-author, right, Lisa, in, in that uh, study as well. We went through the data and we were like, how can we even get started, right? So the first step for that, uh, Ollie, was we, we started looking at things that were happening later after the, the collapse because it's really difficult to make sense of the data right after collapse because you have this it's almost like a shotgun you know it's like boom everything happens and you have all this noise and and, and signal all together and then we started looking for patterns uh, later on in the story so let's focus on 9 and 14 days and see what we see that would be different than between the males and females and their controls and that was when we started. Then we decided to start looking at the glycolysis um, and because they give you the biomarkers that they, or the analytes, I must say, that they give you, they give you them organized by, by pathways, you know, so it, it makes it, it's yeah. more convenient. So we started, we, we used this logical approach to kind of, we took a picture from a book of what a glycolysis pathway is, and we just matched to see where our, our numbers were and we started building that. We, we were very, we didn't do a lot of craft. We, we really published what the logical process was, was building those pathways with our numbers. And we were really surprised that things were shifting. It's almost like when you teach uh, physiology or biochemistry and you go through the glycolysis and you say, okay, now you, this intermediate here is not, is not being produced. So it might be going somewhere else. It's almost like a traffic jam. Right, you get stuck, and then you have to sort of like take a turn and go elsewhere to try to to find to to to, to get where you are trying to go. And things matched in the heart of the females. We saw that it was shifting towards the the pentose phosphate pathway, and that is a sign. Then we went to read about because, of course, I'm not a, a, bio, a biochemist and I'm not an expert in in pathways. I had to learn and read a lot about biochemistry to to make sense of the data. And we consulted with biochemists to see if uh, what we were concluding were even possible because, you know, again, these numbers, the, this analysis, they give you numbers and whether the numbers make sense or not from a, a physiological perspective is up to you to build that idea, right? So, Well, I thought it was a, a really kind of elegant way of demonstrating it. It was, it was really nice that, you know, you saw this um, I don't know, deficiency or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. at one stage of, of the, the, the glycolytic pathway. And it makes sense, right? So then you can go up and it's still there and you go up again and it's still there. And then you can actually see if where it would have branched off. Yeah. So when you first saw the difference and then you said, well, if, it, if it's a real difference, then you, you, it would probably have to follow a different pathway. Mm -hmm. so then you looked at the pathway and there it was. It was accumulating. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, uh, really, really nice. Really nice. I don't think I'll ever be like, because data is like this, right? I mean, you, you do the experiment as well as you can. And the data is the data, right? This is like, we don't know what we're going to see. And when we saw that, and it was, it's almost like matching 
the, the physiology and we were like, holy, it's never going to happen in my career again, probably. So <laughs> I'm glad it was published in JFIS because I don't know if I would, I'll get that set again. <laughs> So, so one thing that was that obviously a lot of people uh, picked up on, and I think you know, was a, a key aspect of your of, of your paper mm-hmm. is that um, it was it was only this th- these effects were only evident in the, the the male mice. Is that right? Female, female, female. Big one in the female mice, and then you went back to the uh, core temperature response and differentiated between the male and female mice, and found that the heating profile was different. Mm-hmm. Can we just talk a little bit about that? So one of the first questions we had um, said, size-wise, are female and male rodents similar? Because that's an interesting question in and of itself, because obviously when we're dealing with humans, we're used to having different sizes. So that's the first part of it. And then if they are not, is there a way in which you can match the heat exposure for rodents? So the type, you know, the type of, a lot of work that we've done in, in my lab, for example, is that mm-hmm. we're always interesting, you know, if you want to compare a male and female um, human and we want to give them the same heat load then we normalize the metabolic heat production for the body mass and then do we have to worry about uh, uh, body composition fitness etc etc doing that in a mouse is probably going to be a, a bit more challenging so can you talk us through that a little bit yeah yeah sure that, that's a very good question and, and in fact it was one of the questions that we faced while trying to publish the the study right because um, yeah. we submitted this study in i must be honest here to the audience and say that we submitted the study to circulation first. Mm-hmm. One of those kind of dreams that you, let's try. It was rejected in a couple of, I think, three hours between we <laughs> submitted yeah. it, and then in three hours later, it came back and and we all laughed. We were like, okay, you know, it's just maybe it's, you know, beyond their scope, but. We've all had that one out of, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, we did. But the questions are, are, are usually towards this, this comparisons. And I think everybody, agrees that now there is this male and female comparisons everywhere. And this is partially because now the funding agencies uh, here in the United States, at least as far as I am concerned, they require you to do the experiments in both both sexes, right? I don't know if this is the same in Australia, but um, so now we started testing. This, this makes the studies more expensive, but of course, there is a lot of unknown questions there between the two sexes that we, we start facing and it's just like you observe and the data is different and what can you do right so we started running males and females and um the whole literature before was based on male data right Liz? i think most of your classic studies were done in in, in male rats and, and male mice yeah. as well so we we had lisa as a kind of a guidance there to see whether our data was making sense. But then when we started with the females, we were walking in the dark. We didn't know what to expect. And the first finding was actually published as part of the PhD work done by Christian Garcia, uh, also from Tom Clanton's lab. And Christian compared the differences. And we found that in our model, the females were being about 40% more tolerant to our model than the males. And to answer objectively the question, this was a surprise because they do have a difference in size. For those who are not uh, familiar with the uh, mouse model, uh, but it, a mouse is about 25 to 30 grams, at least the age we study them. A male mouse is about 25 to 30. In a female, we would go from about 15 to 20 grams. Right. So there is a difference there. And... Um, but the problem is, if you think about thermoregulation, you would expect the smaller or the smallest to heat up faster, right? This is physics, right? Yeah. Yeah, this is what you would expect. So, and we were seeing the opposite. Our smaller females, they were lasting 40% longer than the bigger males. And we were like, oh, and we tried allometric scaling. We tried our best. It's very difficult to measure metabolic rates. I mean, I know that there are cages that you can do some metabolic uh, assessments to try to make some, I would say, more precise estimations of, um, skip the, the, the word now, but uh, about heat production, and, and like you're doing humans with the oxygen consumption. It's more difficult to do with mice. But... Um, this was one surprise. We did the allometric scaling and it didn't explain the difference. The two things we ended up with was both that the females, because they were lasting 40% longer in our model, they were exposed to a greater heat load. They were exposed to heat for a prolonged period of time, more prolonged period of time. 
and they were also exercising for longer, right? Right. So we yeah. kind of wrap up the discussion of that paper as these two being the most likely explanation. And of course, then you have the hormonal part of it that could be also another factor explaining, you know, the fact that you have the estrogen and, and we actually are developing now a project where we will gonadectomize these animals and, and expose them to the model to see if when we remove the, the female sex hormones from the model, now the hypothesis is that these females will match the males. Uh, right, okay. But we will test that. We are testing currently, well, hopefully, right, Lisa, we start soon to test uh, those. Yeah, if it's interesting is um, female mice actually run much better than male rice, mice. And so, when, um, so, again, going back to my graduate school days, but when you want to do a mouse model of runners, you usually choose females. Hmm. I don't know why they run more, but male mice, male rats, hmm. even hamsters, I don't know. They just don't have a proclivity towards running. And female mice do. So it's kind of interesting that they came out that same way in the heap. Yeah. So is there a, any data where, I guess you could break it down, couldn't you? So you could isolate, in a sense, potential differences in metabolism you could then look at it from a perspective of morphology as well, if there are morphological differences. If you've got a higher surface area to mass ratio, um, that would be disadvantageous if you're in an environment where the temperature is higher than the body, because then you're accepting more dry heat transfer relative to mass, therefore you'd heat up. Um, but in the cool, you have an advantage of that. But if then it's if it's metabolic rate, then I guess you could look at it the other way around. I'm wondering if there are data where you could basically form a matrix of, or also look at whether you're the active and whether it's passive, and then with these different. Well, yeah, it's interesting. So it, you're right. So if they would they would take on the heat better, but the reason mice can heat so high and recover is because they cool so fast because of their high surface area to body mass ratio. So I would expect then that even though the females are spending more time in the heat, if it was really a morphological issue, they should be able to cool much faster. I can't remember Orlando if the females and the males look different in their cooling rates. No, it's exactly the profile. This is what is, 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 is fascinating and puzzling is that the profile is exactly the same. Even the depth of the hypothermia during recovery it's overlapping. It's just shifted to the right yeah. when you look the curve, you know. That kind of indirectly discounts that, that morphological issue. So, and I guess maybe this then brings us to the idea of the way in which mice actually thermoregulate. So I was thinking about the tail it plays a, a large role in it. Correct. And so in a sense, can we think about the way in which blood flow to that tail is modulated in a sense of actually modifying their effective surface area. If you're, if you're fully vasodilated in that tail, then you're accessing that as an organ for heat dissipation. But if then you reduce the blood flow to that tail, then you're reducing that heat transfer. Right, right. I think, Ollie, now that you mentioned this, I remember that when I first presented, I think it was in one of the American College of Sports Medicine um, meetings, I don't remember where, and it doesn't matter as well, but I presented and you were in the audience and afterwards you asked me that question. Oh, did I? <laughs> and actually and, and actually we started even the designing a way where we could either like insulate the tail so that you could right. remove their ability to thermoregulate or cool the tail yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or or enhance the, the heat. I don't know if you remember that, but we, we, we came we came I came up with a design by talking to you. You probably don't remember, but and that was an idea I had. Yeah. Well, it's good to know that I'm consistent anyway. <laughs> this is where I think I will take advantage of the question and, and try to move to the second part of this question, which is uh, whether in humans that would be the same thing. This is the difficulty in trying to match uh, the, the human physiology with the mouse physiology, right? And this is a recurrent question. And I complain already, and I am, uh, I've been in this um, exertional heat stroke field since 2014. Right. And so Lisa is probably even more tired than I am of listening to, to the questions about is this model reliable? Is the, the how does this translate into humans? Because it's it's uh, of course, these are different species. You know, you have the size you just highlighted the, the, the fact that blood flow to the tail is different than, than blood flowing through the whole skin. And the, you have the sweat mechanism in, in the human that uh at least during exercise on land is, is, is a fantastic way to, to lose heat. And, um, but in the animal, you have all these limitations. But at the same time, 
that's our best tool to to scientifically approach the the heat stroke problem because we cannot heat up humans in the lab up to you know i mean the reports that we have for humans tolerating very high core temperatures they are you know i think julianne and and and, and these other researchers who go in the field and they measure core temperature of high elite athletes they may find the you know one or two that are highly trained and tolerate those temperatures but you cannot get irb approval to to heat up humans to the extent we can heat the animals in in the lab so despite the limitations i still think that this is our best uh, tool i think to approach this problem and try to propose mechanistic ways that would overlap with the human physiology absolutely but i'd turn that on its head though first of all look at mice look how they survive heat stroke they go hypothermic because of they can Right? They have a very high surface area to body mass ratio, yep. so they can just dissipate that heat and almost go into like a torpor-like state. Well, we probably have those same mechanisms. We just have a thermal inertia we can't overcome. So, you know, people have talked about inducing hypothermia into humans, inducing regulated hypothermia. Many years ago, that was a, that was a sort of a, a topic of interest. I don't think it really went anywhere. But so that's one thing. They're mammals. And they have the, I mean, one of the reasons you use mice and rats is because the genetic homology with humans is so high. So I, I think if you really focus on not the heat, not the thermoregulatory event, because that is different and it's important for your audience probably to understand mice do not sweat. So you, you talked about the tail, but it is important for people to realize they don't sweat. But you know what they do? They pee on themselves and they spread saliva. So yeah, yeah. in some sense, they can still evaporate. But I think it's important to focus on the recovery phase. If you look at the recovery phase and now you're focusing on systemic inflammatory response, that probably isn't that much different because, you know, it's not like a small mammals all of a sudden come up with all these different mechanisms uh, than a large mammal has. They're probably overlap, and especially with the genetic homology. So it is frustrating. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I agree with everything Orlando said, but I do like to turn that on the head and, and tell people, hey, you know what, let's learn from that animal. How is this animal able to survive something so much more extreme than us? And we probably have very similar mechanisms we just can't induce or we aren't inducing. Or we have this thermal inertia issue. One more thing to add uh, in that regard is the, um, the behavioral aspect of exercising in the heat and comparing male and female, right? If, if you go to the lab and you put a group of male runners and you ask them like, okay, do your max, they have the testosterone, they have the all the cultural aspects that would probably push them to boundaries that maybe females will overcome or maybe won't even get close. So with the animals, we remove that. So this is another advantage that we try always, always to explore in our model is that with the animals, presumably you remove, presumably you know, 100%, you remove the cultural aspect of, oh, I'm a man, I'm not going to collapse no matter if I'm fainting or feeling dizzy, you know. <laughs> and, and in the animal, they collapse because the physiology is not allowing them to push forward. I remember seeing a talk from Andrei Romanovsky. I think that was in rats, and he was doing some behavioral thermoregulatory work, and they were in long tubes. And they heated one end and chilled the other end. And there was this thermal gradient along the tube. And then they could basically just shuttle back and forth to, to find the environmental condition which they, they found presumably most pleasant or most tolerable. And I thought that was a really interesting way of using a non-human model to look at actually behavioral responses. It was with respect to thermoreceptor mechanisms, I believe. But I, I thought a nice way of looking at the way in which we can use these different animal models to answer different questions. Yeah. So one of the reasons you use the thermal gradient with the animals, because so I know um, Andre back from the fever work. So I can ask you, if you have a fever, I can ask you, do you feel hot or do you feel cold? Mm -hmm. And I can tell what phase of the fever you're in. Yeah. I can tell whether you're hyperthermic or febrile. Yeah. So we did that with the heat stroke mines. We put them in a thermal gradient. Right. I can't remember when we published that. It isn't a paper that gets much press, but I thought it was kind of cool because it was like, all right, so when they're going hypothermic and they get fever 24 hours, is it regulated or is it unregulated? Yeah, yeah. And that told us that it was a regulated event because they moved into the different areas to try to support those behaviors. So it is a really unique tool. It's pretty fun. Lisa, was that your paper where you tried to prevent the hypothermic phase and the mortality went up? It was yours, right? Yeah, we housed them at a warm temperature so they couldn't cool during, after they collapsed, they couldn't cool. And then they, we got 100% 
they they couldn't survive it. Yeah, that's fantastic. The fact that uh, hypothermia is their defensive, it's required for them to survive, right? This is the conclusion, I think. Um, so uh, just sorry, just looking at the um, the other the other questions we have here, Orlando. I'm just trying to steer clear of the, the ones that are just kind of talking about the translational. Um, so maybe if we could just get back to the question around again, I think the sex differences really kind of stood out uh, in this particular paper. So can you provide a bit more background into what you think maybe the physiological causes potentially of the differences that you saw? Yeah, right. Actually, I think uh, this week. Um, Christian, who is now coming to join my lab as a postdoc fellow, he finished his PhD and he tried to address in one of his studies, he tweaked the model a little bit to, to try to match the heat load. And surprisingly, and it's very hard now, now here, tweaking the model makes things difficult to compare, right? But he I don't recall exactly what he did. I've been so focused on, on setting up the lab. Uh, this has taken all my energy and time that my, all details that I would like to know for this discussion, uh, they may be vague or Christian may listen to the podcast and say, Orlando, you know, gave it all backwards. But <laughs> but anyway, he, he changed the temperature so that the the males would last for the same duration as the females. Right. So he somehow he overlapped that heat, that core temperature profile, he managed to overlap. And uh, I don't remember which biomarker he did. I think he did metabolomics because by, by metabolomics, you can go unbiased metabolomics where you just go like we went for this paper. We went open-ended. We, you just give the samples and you ask them to provide everything about every single pathway, right? Or you can do what they call biased metabolomics is when you go and you choose the biomarker that you are looking for. Right. Right. Of course, this is cheaper and this has a different, it's, it's. Um, I suppose you can do that based on the back of what you found is that you can actually, that you said it was a hypothesis generating, right? So then you can actually do that. Yeah. Correct. Go in narrow hypothesis driven way. Right. And I think they searched for some biomarkers and the conclusion was that, which was a surprise to me and I haven't seen the data, I must be honest. But what I hear is that it's not the heat. <laughs> it's probably the exercise. But I am still to see the data. I must be honest. He presented, he defended this week. Right. I wasn't even invited for the defense. I felt a little bit. I don't know if I missed the email. but I just saw like, oh, congratulations are due for Christian. And I wanted to see the data, right? But I remember he, he called me and he said, Orlando, it's not the heat load. It's exercise, most likely. Which was a surprise to me because the exercise in our model, which is a forced wheel running, if you see them exercising, you would say it's a very, very good representation of what would be a soldier running in the field. But it's not really, I don't know if Lisa agrees with me, but it's not really an exercise where you would see, like they stay for almost three hours, two hours and a half running fine. And all of a sudden it's like Lisa described, it's a switch, they collapse, you know. And uh, it's not that they slow down and then they collapse. It's just like all of a sudden. So I didn't expect my bets were in the heat load, but apparently based on what Christian did, it wasn't the heat load. So it leaves the exercise for us to discuss if we assume the data is, is uh, 100%. And then with the exercise, my idea was, I didn't even say this to Lisa, but Lisa has the classic model, which doesn't have the exercise component, right? And so if you compare the classic with the exertional, you should be able to presumably tease out whether exercise is an issue. But now the problem becomes that the, as Lisa mentioned at the introduction of the podcast, the models are different. The temperatures are different. So it is a puzzle, but I think we have to find ways to, what we use as controls for this exertional heat stroke model is an animal exercising for the same duration as an EHS animal, average EHS animal, but in a, a normal temperature, like 23 degrees Celsius. And so if you think about it, we don't have a non-exercising control and that will probably be required to answer this. But I would say top of my list now to test would be the exercise. And the second one would be the hormonal things that we are actually doing the experiments right now. Could you do experiments where you're looking at the same effect, uh, I guess, in a sense, uh, thermal stress, but it's one's 
one's passive and one's active. Yeah. You'd have to have really quite different uh, environmental conditions for that. You could, but my assumption is that if you, I don't think they would even ever collapse, at least at 37.5 degrees if you leave an animal sitting in this temperature. Because I know that in Lisa's model, 39.5 degrees, they last up to three hours. Am I right, Lisa? Three hours? Rough? Yeah, three to five. Three to five hours. 39.5. So in the exertional, when you superimpose the exercise to 37.5 degrees uh, ambient temperature, you get them to exercise to three hours, 3.5 hours. So my concern is that if we drop the ambient temperature and let them sit there, we may have to sleep in the lab to be able to see them even. And I, I doubt they would even collapse. Yeah, I think it's a thing. It's sort of like your male-female issue. So the males were 25 to 30 grams and the females were 15 to 20 grams. Well, you have a choice. You could say we can keep the age the same or we can keep the weight the same. Right. And so you're always going to have one of these variables that's off. And it's the same thing with the passive and the, the ambient temperature is going to have to be different. So then you're sort of like, eh, are you really comparing what you want to compare? Yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, it makes sense, right? The metabolic load with exercise, it's just that it's ramping up so much faster. Right. Even at 37 and a half. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're probably going to have to stop there, taking a lot of your time today. Thank you again to you both so much for, um, first of all, putting together the videos that were wonderful and also taking the time to answer some of the questions and have a uh, you know broader discussion around this area. Oh, that was fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. We'd also like to thank Stephen Goldsmith for assistance with audio production and Josh McCallum for assistance with branding and promotional design. We look forward to seeing you at the next episode.